What's going on, people, people? This is Christian Ishkumar, and I'm a producer for the show you're tuning into, From a People Perspective. This is a podcast about fascinating people, how they got to where they are, and where they're going, all from the lens of HR, recruitment, and operations. This show is hosted by Martin Hawk. Before getting started with today's episode, I'd like to give a quick shout out to our sponsors. Thanks to Wealth Simple for Work, providing group RRSP and benefit programs for employers to offer. Spring Law, providing virtual support for your smallest and largest employment law issues. Humi, a beautiful and easy to use HRIS platform. And the Leadership Agency, providing award-winning recruitment for startups using innovative approaches. We've got a great episode ahead of us and hope you enjoy. So I wanted to try something a bit new, given that neither of you really need an introduction, especially in the tech landscape. So I just want to start with a few icebreakers because I always do those after I do the really serious intro. It doesn't make sense. So both of you are packing up. You find an old box of CDs or an MP3 player or a record player or whatever. What are your respective, the world's, I only get to keep one album for the rest of time. What is that? Can I go? Because I already know. Oh, man. Go ahead. It, it smells like Teen Spirit. There's no other album that I need for the rest of my days. Yeah. Just that inside, one... I'm just an angry 13-year-old, basically. Like, <laughs> it just explains everything. It's funny. When you mentioned it, like, it's not it's not the one album I would take anywhere. But when you mentioned it, what I thought about was an old Def Leppard tape I had. I think it was probably one of the first tapes I bought and played it through until the the cassette went all grainy and, like, you couldn't. It, it just basically eventually snapped. But... I probably listened to Smells Like Teen Spirit more, but I had it on CD, so it didn't wear out in the same way. Nice. But like Def Leppard, nice. like 80s rock, for sure. And then 90s grunge. Yeah, there was a lot of that. Nice, nice. That makes sense. That makes sense from a raw signal perspective. It's it's starting, it checks out. Like if you said Vivaldi or something, oh. I'd be like, mm. huh, I do interesting. like some Vivaldi, but, the beats. but like, yep. you know. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, interesting. Uh I've not been anointed in Def Leppard, like Nirvana, obviously. My my youngest daughter is like one and a half, and she's obsessed with just watching Dave Grohl play drums. Yep. So we just sit there watching Dave that's Grohl wholesome. YouTube yeah. videos. Yeah, that's legitimate. Better Super than Baby wholesome. Shark. You could do worse. Oh, my goodness. I'm, I'm just going, leaning into the exact opposite of Baby Shark because mm-hmm. I didn't the first time. So, you know, probably some poor management uh, <laughs> approaches there is like, letting the pendulum swing in terms of approaches run to the other side of um, the boat <laughs> so Def Leppard what what song do I need to listen to in order to get it pour some sugar on me obviously pour some sugar on me yeah I mean okay. it's not it's not good like just be really clear like I'm not endorsing it I'm just saying when you ask me like what's <laughs> what's at the bottom of that box like what is, behind the yearbooks and like the the hoodies yeah. that don't fit or whatever that's what you'd find at the bottom of the box for sure okay okay um, all right, uh, moving on. We've covered music. Now we're going to go into food. It's 3 a.m. You can't sleep. You head to the kitchen. You open the fridge. Let's just assume you did the most self-indulgent grocery shopping that week, like just really treating yourself. What is the thing that you're pulling out of the fridge or the pantry or whatever? Dan Dan noodles. I will make Dan Dan noodles anytime, day or night. They're, they're incredible. <laughs> it's life-changing. And like, and... 
that's a that's is a, that a brand? That's a, no, no, it's the name of a dish, and like you can make like super complicated ones and stuff, but you don't need to. Like it's just you like soba noodles, peanut butter, Sichuan peppercorn, garlic. Like there's okay. like eight ingredients, and and it's it's incredible every time, and it's never the same twice, and it's it's so legit. You eat it after the gym at lunch, and you can eat it at three in the morning. It is it is a universal food. When I first got to Toronto, I had Gusto 101's uh, kale salad and fell in love with yeah. it instantly. I was like, this is basically the best thing I've ever eaten. And I was moved from California. So I felt like I knew, like, pretty much knew all kale. I was like, really? Like, I've had kale in every configuration. I'm fine. And had it. And then instantly <laughs> set about not only researching, because I'm a nerd, right? So I, like, researched it online to see other people did, who had tried to deconstruct it. it. Yeah. And then set about, like, not only deconstructing it, but then making my own version of it. Um, and like it is better second day and you're like you cannot say that about most salads they're not better second day anyway that's also yours is better than gusto's oh you have to say that though no it's no it's required. legit it's it's a very strong salad game <laughs> anyway kale salad um i feel i tell this fact or i'm like hey i know something about kale and i'm curious if you both know what i'm about to say on three. Is it the Pizza Hut? Is it the Pizza Hut thing? Okay, we're not going to talk about it. Cool. All right, cool. I, I I had a feeling, and so, yeah, for those of you listeners who don't know, Pizza Hut used kale as a garnish to just like, but we all know this, so we're going to move on, Google it or something. We are, we're nerds, though, so like maybe not everybody is nerdy. There's no the reason way. people should know so who like, the largest, I can't name the largest <laughs> buyer of other like commercial food crops i just happened to know that one and you want it to be a sushi joint like it sh it should be by rights like because they use it to decorate the yeah right? yeah it like, looks great yeah. as a garnish and if not cooked properly it should be a garnished like if not prepared properly um i think most of the nutrients you get from kale is uh is uh, you have to like cook it a certain way because like raw kale doesn't jive or something have you heard of that you have or? to massage it you have to like, massage now it. this is a different podcast than i thought i was joining but like nerds real nerds like, deeper and deeper in order to make it delicious the reason i doesn't like whole dressing for most people and like a lot of people like are just they have it once and it's not good and they're like i don't understand what the like hype is about you have to like you have to massage it just scrunch it you, you know it if you've ever worked with basil you know like tearing it works but like slicing it with a knife doesn't doesn't give you the same effect and you know with garlic that like crushing it is one thing and chopping it is another thing and like kale hates you until you're nice to it why do i just refuse to do that step with kale like crushing <laughs> garlic makes sense right that's an extra set step but kale i'm like no that's too much work i don't want to i don't have to massage other salads why do i have to massage kale but then it's not so good I think that's you're like you could be better like when i go to the restaurant it's really good why and that's what they're doing they're taking that moment to massage their kale it's, it's really an intentionality practice it's about mindfulness it doesn't change the kale at all but it changes you wow yeah yeah is the juice worth the squeeze sort of thing for me that's where wow. i'm getting hung up on um okay um, final kind of, there, there needs, there needs to be no icebreakers in this. We've already done it. I think we, we, we rocked that part out, but Melissa, I'm curious, do you share the same strong coffee infrastructure opinions as Jonathan? Okay. So, uh, I love coffee and as a person who loves coffee, I will drink most coffee regardless of whether mm -hmm. it's great or not. I'm aware when I'm drinking it that like if I'm drinking crappy coffee, I'm like, 
this is not the best coffee I've ever had, but if it's coffee, coffee is better than no coffee for me. That's just math. (laughs) And so like, I'm pretty flexible about it. I I benefit from living with Jonathan who like has very strong opinions about coffee infrastructure. And it means that like, I'm often drinking really good coffee, but even if there's coffee around and it's not good, I'll still drink it. Okay. And in what, what do you have really strong opinions about equally? Everything. <laughs> that's the best everything. answer. That's the mo- that's the most you answer. That's entirely <laughs> correct. Okay. Okay. Um uh, anything in particular for that is I don't want to say that coffee is trivial because that's not the right word, but you get my point in terms of Listen. Coffee's like a lens. <laughs> it's like <laughs> The people who say how you do one thing is how you do everything. That's obnoxious. Like people have bad days. They have good days. They have stuff they care a lot about. Like that's not really true. But if you use it as an anchor point, the the most important piece of infrastructure for coffee making is a scale. That like you can have whatever grinder you have, you have whatever coffee maker you have. But the point is if you have a scale, you can start to experiment with things and you can do it differently tomorrow than you did today. If you don't have a scale, you're sort of eyeballing how much goes into a scoop whatever the hell a scoop is and everything falls apart from there. So like if you, if you want it to be better, you should measure and pay attention to what you like and what you don't like and try something different tomorrow and see if you can hone in on it. If you're not measuring it, it's all up to chance. And I feel like we could segue that into a lot of topics on this podcast. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I just have to share yeah. the first time Jonathan visited my family, like he went to go get coffee because there was like coffee in the coffee maker and he went to drink it and he's like, why is it cold? And I was like, cause it's not from today. Mm-hmm, he answered a- what to do with it, put it in the microwave. <laughs> but that is like growing up. That was what it was. Like if you got coffee and it was cold, like it was not from that day. And the answer was just like, put it in the microwave, hit 30 seconds. It's fine. It's not going to kill you. Yeah. I, I, I share that opinion in terms of like coffee's good kind of no matter what, but like, you know, cold pizza is still good pizza kind of deal. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do have a pretty serious, no, it's not serious. I have a Breville. I have an entry level Breville, Breville, I don't know. Yeah. And for an espresso and I drink espresso in the morning and, but I don't measure it. I got this big old grinder. I guess, no, it's measured because there's like the setting there. Um, so never mind. But uh, I was always like, why are they measuring it? I don't understand. Mm. Um, and I think you've answered that for me. So, you know, I, I, I'm one of the first things I'm walking away with uh, today and we're going to dive into some real good stuff for people, operations, folks, and aspiring leaders and, uh, vintage leaders. No, uh, seasoned leaders. Mm. Um, so as I mentioned, neither of you really need an introduction. I see you as techs, unfiltered, no bullshit, dynamic duo, leveling up leaders everywhere. Uh, you've, best-selling authors, um, literally and figuratively owning world's best newsletter.com. I double checked that twice before I put this in here. So that's cool. They wouldn't let us buy it if it weren't true. uh, I think that's how domain names work. That's an ethics thing or like, uh, yeah, no, that makes sense. I, I, that's, that's what that's for. Um, I forget the like regulatory body for domain names and we're not going to go down that rabbit hole. Uh, You both kind of remind me of this expression that I've come to love. Um, And because of your writing, it feels like I know you more than I actually do because we've really only like 
you know, past each other in the hallway, so to speak, not actually, but in, in tech, um, quality finds its audience. And I think that's what you both really like the quality of your newsletter, the quality of your content and the quality of your leadership training and everything. Like I imagine that does all the marketing for you to a certain extent, Melissa, you might argue from like a marketing perspective, like very intentional, but like I, that's how would you both describe yourselves? I think like for the uninitiated. So early on, we said like good work, good work to do good work, right? Like you have to do good work in order to be able to do good work. But the starting point when people haven't heard of you is that you want that first experience to be really positive, right? Like you want to be able to do work that, that organizations feel like matter to their people, that HR leaders feel like doesn't sort of poison their people, right? Like for us getting started sort of early on, especially coming from startup backgrounds where folks were like, you're not actually career management trainers, right? You're really coming from an operator perspective. And either that's going to work really well and it's going to sort of connect for folks or it isn't. And so I think we put a lot of stake into making sure that the first interactions we had with companies, like we really valued and honored the trust that they were placing in us. Yeah. And I think, you know, because we left, even without an introduction, suffice it to say, Melissa and I have both been executives at a bunch of tech organizations, especially startups, um, for a couple decades before we started a signal group. And and you don't run a management training company. You don't leave executive roles in tech to run a management training company because you're like, that's where all the money is. Everybody, and it's not really for the like razzmatazz either. Like we're proud of the business that we've built, but like the reason you do it is to have impact. And so a lot of the time, whether we're developing programs or figuring out what to write the newsletter about this week or whatever, it's, it's really around like, what are we hearing when we talk to leaders, when we talk to HR professionals, when we talk to founders and CEOs, uh, what do they need? And like, do we have anything we can say there that's useful? That's not us bullshitting or making it up or whatever, but that we can actually draw from our experience or say, Hey, this person said this thing. And this person said this thing and let us connect those dots. I think it's very kind of you to say, you know, quality finds its audience. What we are trying to do every day when we wake up is say like, can we make work a little bit better for the people we can reach today? And, and it means we're very motivated through conversations like this, through anything we can to figure out how to reach more people. Right. We we feel like we've got a we've got a way that we approach problems that seems to find resonance, but that's that's our, our the driving force every day is sort of how can we get that out to more people because every person we reach, we we may be able to be useful that day. That uh feels and sounds very mindful, right? That you and you you wake up with this, how do we build better bosses is the the slogan right and the one or or even just the concept of like ridding the this the slogan or the the quip that i enjoyed the most was like ridding the world of the sunday scaries and when i read that i was like oh that's not just like the sun i called it the sunday blues and i've had the sunday blues mm. um how's that going how's that mission going i think it, it's interesting like people often feel like like the manager skills are sort of surface level. They're like, okay, like you, you teach bosses how to do stuff. I sort of get it. Great. Okay. Right. But the, the link that's often hard to explain to people is like that bosses for most folks control how work feels, right? Like if you have a good relationship with your boss, generally, if I ask you how it's going at work, you like, you'll often say pretty good. Even if your industry is boring, right. <laughs> even if the work is like, so, so like if your boss and you are sort of like getting on and able to get stuff done, you generally feel pretty good about it. If your relationship with your boss is very bad, even if you love your industry, even if you're working at like 
the cutting edge of like really cool tech that you can't work on anywhere else. Like if you and your boss do not have a good dynamic or good, like healthy working relationship, nothing else matters. And like, that's the core of the work that we do, right? Like when we get sort of fired up about it, it's that like so much rests on that relationship and so much rests on those bosses having the skills that they need in order to like do the thing, like do the job and do it well. But like many people sort of like lose track of that and they're like, okay, like, so what will happen if those bosses have like those skills? And we're like, work gets better for like everyone, including the bosses. Yeah, it's it's weird. You know, when we're in program, we focus a lot in all of our programs on if you've ever been through one of our programs, you know what I'm about to say, right? Stuff you learn on Tuesday that you can apply on Wednesday. Like we talk all the time about like, how can we ground this in practice? We'll give you the research if you want it. We've, we've read all the papers and stuff. Like if you want to dive in on the academics behind it, that's valid. Those people have studied what works and what doesn't. And, and that's what underpins a lot of it. But when we're talking, we're talking in this really practical way. Like if your one-on-ones aren't working, let's talk about what they're for and disassemble them and reconstruct them, right? If you're struggling with hard feedback, let's get really methodical about how to deliver that, whatever the thing is. And on the one hand, you'd think that's pretty sort of nuts and bolts. It's really just the methods and the practices and the techniques. And not all the time, but a non-zero amount of the time, we get people crying. And that's weird. You know, if I was explaining Mm. like, toilet repair, I would still be talking about techniques and, you know, the tools that you need and stuff like that, but you, you wouldn't expect the same emotional response. And, and what ends up happening is that you, something clicks for that person mm-hmm. and they figure out why it's been so hard and they yeah. figure out like they have this moment of reflection, right? And, and we lean on it a lot in terms of like, not just like, what is the tool, but what do you notice about last week's one-on-one? What are you, what are you going to do differently? Right. And that reflection unlocks something for them. And they're like, oh, they often stay after the program. And they say, you know, I had an underperforming employee. And I see now that whatever their failures were, I see where I failed them. And I'll never do that yeah. again, right? I, I had a promotion that didn't go the way I expected. My person was angry. After, mm-hmm. And I see now what I did. And I will never do that again. I also sometimes get folks saying like, I, I now know that feedback that I got early in my career should not have ever been given, right? That I got a piece of feedback that like is way offsides in terms of like Mm. the role that I was in and the the position of power that that person was in over me. And like, there are, there are folks who often connect a thing where they're like, that is like in that moment, it felt like my failure because I was getting negative feedback. But in that moment, like that failure was actually like an organizational failure and an individual boss's failure. And like, now I can contextualize it. And often like, that's why like the, sometimes the tears there are relief, but like, it's like, now I have an answer for this thing that like really stung when I was 22. You know, it's yeah. like when you ask, like, how's it going? One of the ways that, that we, one of the things we do at the end of any program is we send LinkedIn connection requests to everyone. Right. And, and it's the best because it means anytime we open that website that is sort of hellish at times, but like anytime we open it, there's a bunch of push notifications <laughs> about like, congratulate these contacts on their new positions. And you just, you yeah. see people who went through programs, like getting promoted, starting their own thing, like having more influence and, and not because we've given them some good housekeeping seal of approval that they will never make a mistake again. Like the, the goal is not actually perfect management. The goal is competent mm. management. Like we have stickers mm. printed with a little like pennant, like from the fifties that just say competent management on it. Cause like, that's what we're cheering for. So many people are given these jobs and they're given none of the backing. And like, if you can just get them to competency, I don't promise they won't make mistakes, but they'll at least have any hope of creating a good working experience for the people on their team. 
Yeah, that's um, that actually dovetails nicely into one of the questions, which was, do you have specific stories that stand out for you that become those moments? Because no business is perfect unless raw signal is. And if so, we should just turn this into a podcast about how to create a perfect business that is nothing but pure joy. But in terms of if my assumption is correct, that it's not always pure joy and there's really frustrating moments that you both go through, but there are those stories that bring you back and say, this is why I'm doing what I do. Do you have any specific ones that you, you go to? How long is your podcast? Man. I mean, I think like in the very early days of Raw Signal Group, we felt like the price of admission was we had to be willing to talk about our own fuck ups, right? We had to talk about our own failures. We wanted bosses to like be okay with saying like, it doesn't have to be perfect and shiny all the time. And like in the eight, in the like height of Instagram, we were out there saying like, sometimes it's going to be a little bit messy, like, which was like <laughs> just very countercultural at the time. Um, but we were like, if we, if we feel like sometimes it's got to be messy, like we have to be willing to share some of the, some of the mess and some of the things that we learned really the hard and like sort of awful ways. Um, and now I would say these days, like we're, we're in our seventh year in business, which feels bizarre to say that we are like seven years in, um, but seven years in, I would say like our, our, like our fabric of storytelling is so much a composite of not only sort of our own stories, but now like we've worked with thousands of bosses across the globe and like so many of their stories have really like sort of changed the way that we think about these things. And I will say like the one that comes to mind for me is like, we had a, a group of bosses that we were working with and they were in Iraq. Right. And they're like, their program organizer reached out. They're doing like a startup incubator with Iraqi bosses. And they're like, do you want to talk to them? And we're like. We are like really good at management and leadership, but like we, we are often talking in a North American or like a Western European context. We're rarely talking to an Iraqi audience. So you're going to have to tell us what we need to know. And they gave us like a, a sort of good bit of background. And then we get on the phone with folks and we're like, okay, so like, let's talk about it. Like what's hard, what's going on, where can we be helpful? And the first question was like, it's really hard to give feedback. And when I do, it's really hard to get the person to like apply what I'm saying to their work. And I would say the thing that stands out for us, like now having done this work, like all over the globe is that like so many of the things that bosses find hard are, are universally hard, right? Like are just hard across the board. And you're like, yes, your context is different. Your company is different. Your like cultural expectations are really different. Your like, like business language is different. And like, this is just really hard. Yeah. We had a, man, there's so many, we had a CTO in a startup, in a program with us recently and uh, he was managing a lot of people. He had like 18 direct reports. Um, and that's not so unusual. If you're the, the first technical person in a technology-focused company, you want to stay really close to it. You want to be mentoring up all the people that come up. And early in the program, we talked about sort of what's reasonable in terms of management load, right? And we quoted like Andy Grove's line about like, you should budget about half a day per week for each of your direct reports. It doesn't mean you're going to use half a day per week, but you got a budget for it. Cause if you don't, you're going to run out of slack and then that person needs a ton of attention and there's nowhere for that to come from. And so, you know, materially, that means you're not managing more than 10. And really, if you have any other obligations beyond just that team, which a CTO has a few of, then you, you need to be reducing that, right? You need to be right. six, right? Four. Um, and he, you know, wanted to ask questions about that and say, well, what's that based on? And, and what would I do with that time? And, and how would I think about that? And then he came back a couple of weeks later in the program and he said, yeah, I made some changes and I now have, what was it? Two, three, three direct reports. And we said, how is that? 
And he's like, I can do my job. Like I, <laughs> I realized all the things that I was dropping on the floor. Cause I couldn't, I couldn't, right. There was just, there's so much yeah. that I needed to do. And like, you know, in a sense, it's so simple. Like that's, it's not a complex thing to be like your org chart has a, a real hot spot here and we should fix that because you're a bottleneck for a bunch of things. Like intellectually, you can understand that in two minutes, but like what mm -hmm. happened as a result of him doing that is that like he was able to show up for his organization the way they needed an executive to show up and like his team, some of whom were also in program, are like this is better. This is substantially better. Yeah. And when Melissa talks about it, like the industry he was in sort of doesn't matter right? The work those individual people were doing sort of doesn't matter. They're having a better experience of work now. And like, that's, you know, they could have, they could have gotten that from a, from a page in a book. They could have gotten that from a YouTube channel, but they didn't because it needed yeah. to come in a context where like they were willing to engage with it and reflect on it. And that's a lot of what we do. We don't claim to have invented, you know, new techniques for management for the most part, but like we talk about them differently and we pull them together differently and we connect the dots. And that's, that's what makes it worthwhile. When you have frustrating days, you sort of point to that and you're like, there's 30 people in that organization having a better life right now. Yeah. And, and, and you can point to it in terms of you played a role in not necessarily inventing the concept that you shared with them, but introducing them to it, introducing to a concept that unblocked someone tremendously. And that has such a crazy ripple effect within an organization, given the folks that you typically work with because of how big the impact, like every leader that you've, that raw signal has helped. There's X number of people below that, that are truly reaping the benefits from it. So it's a one-to-many approach, which is kind of cool versus the like one-to-one -one coaching. That's exactly it. Like we are old school internet scale people. Like we, we sort of came up in the early days of the web and we really like problems and systems that scale. And when people ask about like raw signal group, they're like, well, you're the only ones who do training, right? Like how does the business scale? And we're like, it is a really neat thing, not only to sort of have folks at work having a better experience and then sort of see that go exponentially. But then the the neatest part lately has been like watching the reconfiguration of people within our alum community find each other at other organizations, right? So like they mm. may have come through a program with, like we're now seven years in, right? So like maybe they came through a program with us three or four years ago, but then we get a note saying, hey, like, did you know that this person's now at this organization with this other person who, and, and then they figure out that they all know the raw signal group secret handshake and they have this like shared language moment. And we're like, that is cool. Like that's the stuff that like first year in business, you can't see that that's going to happen, but then it does. And you're like, that is so neat. That's so I have to double click and I have not sadly had the pleasure of going through the program, but I've had so many conversations with people that, you know, from a recruiting perspective, what's interesting to me is when I hear about, candidates saying that they familiar with raw signal group automatically as a recruiter i know they're like oh don't have to worry about leadership with this one that becomes a line in my slack message or my email to a hiring manager on you know these are the notes on candidate abc or whatever and here's why they're a good candidate kind of thing and it's just this kind of to your point you're not it's not a seal of approval to say that this person is perfect, but it is a seal of approval to say that, that this person is far ahead of most people when it comes to leadership, because there is no real, you can learn all these skills, uh, whether they're technical, I suppose, from like a development perspective, but the, um, there is no leadership training formally ever, which is probably why raw signal exists to a certain extent. And, um, 
for I think I sorry, just go say ahead. for RSG bosses, like they can't say they didn't know. Right. Like they can say a lot of things that can be imperfect. They can have like an individual conversation or an individual meeting that doesn't go as they meant it to go. But I would say like the the sort of universal for people who have been through programs with us is that they like particularly like if they if they went through in earnest, right? If they like were able to like sort of get in there and do the work, there isn't a moment where they can say, like, I didn't understand the power that I held in that moment. I didn't understand the impact that was going to have. Like I may have mis like mis like sort of misestimated that like that conversation or that specific situation. But like the, the thing that many leaders struggle with is like nobody, like I got promoted and I now have a different title and nobody's told me anything about how it's different. Mm. Mm. That's, um, you know what? I'm not going to lie to you. I'm, I need to ask, is there actually like a secret handshake? <laughs> Sort of that that was just taking up. I need to get that out of there. It was living, it was being very noisy in my head for that moment. Um, no actual and, secret handshake, but there's like, okay, okay, this is like a, a figurative. It, yeah. it's, you're, you're not creating like Freemasons 2.0 or something like that. Well, okay. yeah, well, Stop so it. no, 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 that's really important to say up front, no. no. Um, but <laughs> Melissa mentioned stickers. It's funny because we like, you know, Melissa and I met in the early days of Firefox at Mozilla and, and it was a very sort of swag heavy culture, lots of stickers, lots of t-shirts. Um, the sticker culture has carried and what happens is like people see new stickers. Like we, you know, when we talk about project management, we have a, we have a, like a knuckle tattoo of racy, right? R-A-C-I. And, and that's, Oh, careful. There you go. Oh, Listeners, you can't see it, but Melissa's holding up a phone because Just nearly knocked over my microphone with that phone. Yeah, um, I think we're okay to do this on video. I mean, <laughs> so go. far, like okay. you've got a great background. Uh -huh. I'm in a creepy Fortnite dungeon. It's Sweet. fine. We're yeah, that's all we would need. Yeah. So my point is, um, Racy's not cool. It's not. It's not like like distribution of ownership during project management in a corporate context is not like a cool topic, except that like when it unlocks something for people and they're like, oh crap, I get why projects that used to be really easy when we were a five person organization are like failing all over the place now. And it's not because we've suddenly started hiring bad people, which is often what they say. They're like, these new people are not made of the same stuff as like the first 15 we had, right? <laughs> it's not, it's like your, your operating context is different. So we talk them through this thing and some of them, not all of them, but some of them get like really hype about it. And then we show them the sticker and say like, if you want one, just send us an email or with your address and, and we'll mail one to you. And and when you see that on somebody's laptop, that's a secret handshake moment. And like yeah. from a marketing perspective, like it's worth noting, none of our stickers are branded. Like there are stickers, they're not from anywhere oh, else and yes. you can't get them anywhere else and you can't buy them. And so in terms of secret handshake of like alum, just finding each other out in the world, like, I don't know, like when we were originally sort of putting them together, we were like, oh, it'd be cool if somebody in a coffee shop, like has their computer and somebody else sees a sticker mm. that they know, then they, they do have a secret handshake moment, but okay. no official secret it, handshake. We actually, speaking of, there's like one other secret handshake that comes up. It's been coming up enough lately that we've tried to wrap a word around it. Um, we've had to start keeping track of word of couch as a marketing tool, which is where one person uh, is going through a program, right? Is like maybe one of our online programs that has a self-study component or whatever. And their partner or their roommate or whatever overhears it. And oh. is like, can I just sit in while you're doing And then like, and then that, that person's company reaches out and said, we've heard great things about your program. And when we dig into why it's because they, 
they were on the same couch as somebody else who was going through the program. And so like, there's a weird secret handshake there where like, there's no reason we should be in conversation with this company except Mm. for the human connection they have to somebody else that we're in conversation with. Right. That's so I'm, I mean, selfishly, I kind of want to go down a rabbit hole because I've got a HR recruitment consulting company now and getting that kind of lead gen, so to speak, would be magical. That's not what this podcast is about, but I was, I mean, part of me double clicked on the secret handshake thing, uh, (laughs) because I legit joined the Freemasons when I was like, I don't know, 22 or 23. Can we have a podcast about that? Yeah. I I think it's worth Freemasons when you were 22. So when I was 22, I was running a wholesale industrial goods distributor branch in Scarborough. And one of my customers who came in regularly was like the delivery driver that picked up stuff. And he was a Freemason and I saw his ring and I was like, oh, tell me more about that ring. And he was really coy and kind of vague about it. And the mystery of it kept me like, I want to know more. I've heard about this and, and whatnot. And, uh, and then I literally asked him like three times. He's like, Martin, I'm so glad you asked me three times because now I can actually tell you what's going on. Oh, what? And I was like, oh, this is so cool. And the fact that they have secret handshakes and like the clubhouse vibe of it and all these like stupid like reasons for wanting to be like, you know, I've thought of, like having been through that experience and seeing like the good and the bad and all the interesting stuff about it, like as an example, I was in Cuba with my ex-wife and there was just someone, a waiter was pouring water for us and wine for us. And I saw that he had a ring and he went from someone that we, we would be pleasant with for like 30 minutes to him inviting us over to his house to have dinner with his family. And it's an experience that never would have happened had we not both been initiated essentially and going through the same crazy weird experiences that we could do a podcast about. But like, there's such an interesting piece. And this actually ties into like this, I don't know that it's controversial, but like companies trying to create cults for engagement and Freemasons being similar, like they have rituals, literally, and they have secret handshakes and they have all these things that help truly like connect people in such a unique, interesting way and companies wanting most of that. I'm curious to get both of your takes on uh, like their companies get it wrong a lot of the time and that usually ends up in the news. And then the companies that do get it right, what would you say that balance is between operating as if you're a cult and but also like generating and fostering human connection at its core the reason cults are bad (laughs) is is that they usually act to self-reinforce to the detriment of the individual right the reason cults are bad is because one of the ways i get you deeper into the cult is by getting you to disconnect from people who aren't in the cult and people who might pull you out of the cult and so like the thing that shows up in a lot of workplaces that have this sort of cult of personality, especially around like a really charismatic leader or whatever, is is a version of the same thing. The reason you can tell it's bad is because people are not having a good time. They they might Mm. be devoted. They might feel like they're having a real impact. Maybe, Maybe they're correct about that. Maybe they aren't. But they're burning out. Their friends and family don't see them anymore. And, you know, they've got health issues. Like you can tell 
when work is harming someone, even if the person involved is like, no, but I have to, because I'm so close to my next promotion or like, I finally got a meeting with the CEO and I've been trying to do this for six months or whatever. Like that happens. And there are whole industries built on it, right? There's, there's whole industries where the idea is like hire people young, grind them into a pulp. 10% of them will make it through, call them partner. Right. And like, and then rinse and repeat. And, and, you know, doctors do it with like residency shifts that are like not, not sustainable. And they say, well, I went through it. And when we're talking with organizations, one of the things we do is we're like, can we just, can we stop for a sec (laughs) with all the tricks and like, and the insistence that it be exactly like it was in 1964 and say like, what kind of organization are we trying to build here? And what are we trying to get done? Also, like before you go out and build a cult, I'm not saying you can't, although like probably I'm saying don't, you but can't. Like, Jonathan's saying you can't, I'm not saying you can't, but before you go out and like build an actual cult, have you considered training your managers? It's, <laughs> Holy less, shit. it's less sexy. It's like, yeah. it will get you on the news probably a little bit slower, but like you just, you could, Option one, option one, build a cult. Option two, have your bosses know what the fuck their jobs are. Well, and you know, like <laughs> you're being whimsical, but you're also deeply correct, which is that like, like all of this, there's all these trappings, right? Even if it's not culty, even if it's like, we're going to donate $20 every day you come into the office and like, you know, we're going to, we're going to restructure the way we track our things. Like there's, there's all this noise around the core of work. Right. We need you to come back into the office. We need you to stay home. We're going fully remote. Actually, we're going three days in. Actually, we're checking badge access. And if you don't come in at least three days, you're fired. Like there's all this stuff to try and compel Mm. a set of behaviors from people who like, by the way, and you know this about yourself and it is reasonable to assume it's true of other people too. These people show up wanting to do a good job. They show up wanting to get along with their colleagues by and large. They're not, they don't want this like sniveling, terrible life where they figure out which of their friends is going to bring in everybody's badge today and badge them all in so that none of us gets fired, but only one of us has to go to the office. Like it's, you know, you d- at some point you have to engage with like, what are we asking our people to do? And how are mm. we, how are we engaging them in that conversation? Not engaging them by gamifying their performance review, but engaging them as human beings and saying, do you understand why this work matters? Is there a different way we should be doing this? Right? Like you can do that. That thing is called management, but like, so many organizations that we talk to are reaching for any tool, but that one, it's like, Mm. it's like there's a dead zone in the map of solutions where like people's eyes just bounce off the idea that, that you actually have a set of people in your organization already who are accountable for how engaged their teams are and how effective they are at achieving certain things. Like that's not the people and culture team and everybody thinks it is right. Like they take like a, a, you know, people and culture person and say like, like it's your job. Engagement is your job across the entire organization. And like, it, it isn't, it isn't, it's the stupidest thing. You're like, you can't move that number. Like as an individual, you can't move that number by yourself and you can't move that number with lunch and learns. Like it's not possible unless your lunch and learn is a lunch and learn for bosses to tell them how to run effective one-on-ones, right? Like it's just, it's not possible to do it with board games. And I know we seem myopic on it and we're like, we're super focused on this one thing. Um, but, but it's because the data supports that thing. It's not like, it's, it's, yeah. it's not like we, we, we picked a card out of a deck and it said management training. We're like, okay, that's the one, <laughs> right? It's that like, it's when you look at any sort of knowledge work-based organization, the number one predictor, not only of employee engagement, but also of productivity is like 
what is my relationship like with my direct manager? And so when, yeah. we, when we talk about investing in those people, it's not because we think they're super special. It's not it, like, it's because we, we know they're a point of leverage and they're one that a lot of organizations under invest in. And that's a bummer, right? But like, yeah. but they do it for predictable reasons, which is like, mostly they were under invested in the people making those decisions, the CEO, the C-suite, they figured it out as they went by and large, right? The, the stat that somebody dug up a while ago is that the average person in a management role got their first management role in their late twenties or their early thirties. Okay. So if you're management track and you stuck with it, that's probably when you started, they get their first training in their early to mid forties. So there's like a 10 to 15 year gap where everybody reporting to you is having a bad time while you try to figure it out. And shout out to yeah. Steph Little because she was the original place where we found that stat. She sent it to us. Thank you, Steph. Nice, nice. I gotta, I'll flip her a note. Oh, you have to listen to this podcast. Um, one thing that was coming to my mind as we're talking about all of this is the idea that there's so much positive impact um, that that this work has that you tangibly see and it's why you're continuing to do it. I'm curious, what's the most frustrating part about what you do? What to call it? is like yeah. really hard. It's really hard. Cause like, uh, like it is management training, but it is often like the key to unlocking why organizations are broken and fixing it. And like, that's a mouthful that doesn't work. Like that's not a category, but for many of the orgs that we work with, that's, that's their lived experiences. Like I had a management core that didn't know what their jobs were and were wreaking havoc all over the organization. And like as an HR leader or a people and culture leader, or like ever, like I could see those things. But like, until we got the entire management core on board, like we didn't, we sort of didn't have the chops to fix it. And now we do. And I'm like, it's, it's, it's too many words. It doesn't like, it doesn't fit on a bumper sticker very well. Yeah. It's really tricky, mm. right? Because people have a relationship to training. Training is something you do to like invest and retain, right? Like you, you've got people who are growing. You want to show that you're invested in them. So you set aside a budget of whatever per year and you let them spend it, sending themselves to South by or whatever. And, and you just call that, professional development. Uh, and most people don't use that budget. And the ones who do sort of their managers get annoyed with them because they're spending all the budget. Um, that relationship to training makes it feel really discretionary and sort of like, if we don't do it this year, we can do it next year. It's like, it's like, yeah, we'll do management training once we've cleaned up all the messes we have for our like ill-equipped managers right now. And then, then it'll be time to do that. And we're like, no, <laughs> it's not, it's not that it's that like the people you are paying to help operationalize your business, to help run your business, don't know how to do it because nobody's given them the tools. That's a disaster. Like we're, we're in the disaster remediation business as at least as much as the training business. But again, you don't want to put that on a, a website either because like not everybody thinks of their organization as a disaster. They're just like, Hey, we've been doing this like remote by default thing for three years and it's still not working right. Yeah. Are you a, we've been doing remote for three years and it's still not working right company. I'm like, yeah, that's management training. They're like, well, we don't need to do training this year. We just need to deal with this whole, like we've been doing remote for three years and it's really not working thing. And yeah. so, yeah, what, how to, how to get to people's diagnostics earlier to have them recognize, oh, the problem we're having is a problem of competency. We need to invest in that. 
is would help if you've got a if you've got magic phrases there we would love to know them you can ask the masons <laughs> well i mean i wouldn't but uh the i think the well i think some of the secret handshake stuff from uh what keeps people engaged right they're they've done a great job of engagement and curiosity um and you know those those secret handshake moments that your alum have where it's like oh they see the sticker that isn't branded but they know there there's a cool factor there um even though racy isn't cool but uh when i first i stumbled upon the phrase or the acronym or whatever it is myself i'm like this is magical and i loved it because it just saved me so much time but i digress i think the thing about that probably may like being on the buyer side of training, um, but not the sole like people ops typically gets a budget that they're handheld with. It's a hand holding budget versus like, we're just going to give you X number of dollars and you spend it however you need sales teams so that you can go and generate revenue because that's really important. But on the people ops side, it's like work closely with finance so that, you know, everything is taken care of and da, 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 where there's this fascinating approach that I've seen. I don't know if it'll help, but where it's like, okay, well, what's the easiest way to forecast this from a budget perspective? Well, let's put a dollar figure of amount of training we're willing to give every employee. And then we'll use that as the number. But, but, but secretly, not even secretly, but behind the scenes, we'll put a percentage of expected use mm -hmm. yes. of like, we'll say 30% of the people. And the metric isn't like, oh shit, only 30% of our people use the training budget. It's always, oh fuck. Yeah. It's like 25% of the people use like, so we saved X number of dollars because they see it as a cost center, as opposed yeah. to all the intrinsic benefits that comes with having competent leadership. Um, so the system of analyzing it is broken. And I think that's what you said essentially, right? Yeah. The system of selection is broken too, right? Like we, when we see organizations that like have discretionary PD and we're like, and they have sort of personalized individual like L and D budgets, we're like, that is amazing, right? Like anybody would want to work, work in an organization that was investing in their skills and their development. The trick for managers is that like, if I'm managing in an organization and I choose to go to a program over here and Jonathan's managing in the same organization and chooses to go to do some other program entirely. When we go to interact, like often that there's no, they don't click at all. And so like our issues before we went to management training were that like, we didn't see eye to eye. We didn't have shared language. We didn't have shared understanding of what it meant to do the job well. And we have entrenched because we've now gone to different training and the different training, like we came back armed with reasons why one of us is right and the other one is wrong but the other one has exactly that. And so like Thanks. organization, it's funny, right? Like, so we see orgs where like their L and D spend cancels each other out. Right. And like the CFOs can often see it, right? Like the finance people can often see, okay, like if we're doing that and we expect the result to be that these folks like can work in a common way, then like it has to start in a common place. Otherwise we're, we're literally spending money for no reason. But you can see yeah. how like palpable the need is because like we have, we have these programs that are, Hello. 
That'll we'll you can, that. That's cool. <laughs> you can see how palpable the need is because like we'll have programs, big programs, right? With with you know a hefty price tag, and we have people sending themselves out of pocket because they need it and they know they're not going to get the approvals internally and and they don't they're not going to wait or fight over it. They they go and sometimes they're like can I get a receipt formatted this way? Cause I'm going to try to go claim it retroactively, but I need to be there regardless. And so they, they just, they just send themselves. And like, that's, that's a failure of any learning and development system. If you've got people yeah. who want to invest in their development to professionalize in the role that you're paying them to do. And they feel like the only way to do it is to, to go side channel and put it on their personal credit card. There's something's broken there. hundred percent. The thing I might, add to that is a bit contrary to it is for myself personally, the thing that I started doing was investing in myself. So like the learning and development budget wasn't there. And so I, and the coaching wasn't necessarily available to me. And so I had gotten a raise and part of me just earmarked some of that raise to, uh, taking care of myself or upskilling mm-hmm. myself. And that without question led me to like the invest, the ROI was there. So even if like, even as a, as an organization, if you're looking at ROI and you're like, okay, well, if we invest in people, is it going to make a difference? Mm-hmm. Yes, obviously the math is there. You're, you know, this wouldn't be a thing if it wasn't working, but uh, even when I did it for myself, I improved. But I think what's what's really fascinating for me, at least, is that I went and learned this one particular brand of jujitsu. And if we really want to be effective, it's not going to make sense for me to have this like really obscure brand. Whereas like if everybody goes through the same school to the same school or gets the same information, the the compounding effect of like everybody knowing the same thing and having a shared language is is a big insight for me to say like okay yeah like i've never i always loved to be honest with you the i liked the idea of self-selected learning and development Mm -hmm. and maybe it's good for like like if if people get a grand for example from a budget perspective you know, maybe 500 bucks of that is self-directed. And then the other 500 is like, no, we're, this is going to be something that we all do together. So you can go off and hone your skills in one particular area and in the other. And that's never been a thing. It's either one or the other typically. So. Yeah. And sometimes the goal, like it can make sense, right? Sometimes the goal is individual development, right? It's like, I just, I'm, I'm rusty on this language that we need and I need to go sort of brush up on it. Okay, fine. Right. But sometimes the goal is cohesion. And if the goal is cohesion, but you don't have a coherent, like, like a cohesive strategy going into that. Like, I don't know how you get that outcome. Yeah. It's challenging. right? And like, it doesn't have to be RSG. Like I I would love it if it were raw signal group, right? Like I would love if people were like, that's, that's what we'd like to use for a coherent strategy. But I'm like, even if it isn't, and you still want your bosses to like be able to talk to each other, like they need to have some of the shared language. And there's, you know, there's like, there's a lot of shared understanding right? Like the, the research, we're not cherry picking our own research here. There's a lot of information out there about what high performing teams look like. Um, the challenge or one of the challenges with this industry in particular is that there's a lot of snake oil in management training. And it usually takes the form of like, here's the system. Hmm. You know, we're going to put, we're going to put people into six buckets, eight buckets, 16 buckets. You're going to do a, like a deep self-assessment to figure out which one you're in. 
And that's, that's your decoder ring for all of it. If you just know which bucket that other person is in and you know which bucket you're in, here's a total explanation, not only for where you encounter conflict, but how to fix it. And there's a hundred of them. And you could like, other than the names of the buckets, you could swap out all the surrounding text and it would, it would move from one to the other seamlessly because they're all pitching the same idea of like, let me take this very complicated thing and make it very simple because then you'll have a playbook. You're like, Oh, I'm, I'm an INTJ and you're an ENTP. So like (laughs) we can connect on these things, but not on these other things. And it's like, okay. But when you look at it in practice, they all fall down in the same way, which is like, when I do the self-assessment, I'm like, Whoa, I am learning some things about myself here. This is really powerful. That's great. Like literally without irony, any tool that has you learn things about yourself. I love that. That's really valuable. And reflection is a core part of leadership development. And so like, I'm so happy about that. When you turn to section two of the book and it's like, here's how to interact with other people based on your types consistently falls over consistently, very hard to apply consistently. The real world does not fit so neatly into those buckets. And so all that training ends up fizzling because it's not, it's not grounded in what we know actually drives success. And then we end up getting those leaders into program and their starting point is that they feel like it's not possible to manage people who are different from themselves. And it's just Mm. a very dangerous message to give to leaders in modern organizations, right? Like for for sort of really obvious reasons, like if you can only manage people who are like you and think about things like you, one, that's bad for your organization, but two, like you're just running headfirst to monoculture and you've got a stamp of approval for monoculture because like it's now backed by like, well, like I'm a four and that person's an eight and we're going to have conflict. So I don't think we should hire them. Like you just, you end up in a, in a really weird spot really quickly. Yeah. Is there, there's a lot of labeling to help people bucket themselves and teams bucket themselves and how they operate. It sounds like there's a different approach there. And I imagine you use the word secret handshake, but I don't think secret sauce is something that applies to this. No, we, we lean a lot on sort of what constitutes highly effective teams, right? Your individuals are individuals. You should definitely talk to them like individuals. You don't really need to bucket them. You can be in conversation with them in terms of like the, the ways we can give feedback and the ways we can talk about the work that we have to do and how to plan it. And if you're somebody who needs to see things in email ahead of time, cause you get nervous if you're responding in the moment in a one-on-one that's, that's a negotiation we can have, but, but like the putting them all into buckets, it, it sounds very appealing, but the truth is that like humans are not that simple. No. And even if like you and your team develop a code for like, here's how we like to work together, right? Like here's how our team gels it often falls over the moment your team has to then go work with another team within the organization because like often like it's just wildly different in terms of those expectations. And so like we push a lot on like one of our, one of our super secret handshake stickers says super fucking clear, right? That like clarity in most organizations in modern context is an act of inclusion. So like if you think a thing about how you're working and you're taking for granted that somebody else is going to think the same thing, because like you have an expectation that you came up through the same industry or came up through the same discipline, like the more overt like you can make that, the more explicit you can make that, the more likely it is that when your team goes to work with another team, that team will have some idea of like how you got to that assumption, how you got to sort of that work part. Like just so much of like where stuff falls down is like we're just leaning on this idea that like we all have the same thing in our heads and we don't. It's funny. We, we sometimes, when we're talking to a bunch of hiring managers, right? Sometimes recruiters are in the room, sometimes they aren't. But when we're talking to a bunch of hiring managers, 
one of the questions we'll ask them is, what signal does it send to you? How would you relate to a candidate who shows up in a suit for an in-person interview? Wait, don't say. What is your answer? Hmm. I think after I, because there's, there's that small percentage of people that do. And I think the, the biased assumption that, that typically happens, not only admittedly through myself, but everyone around the room that had an opportunity to meet that person is they, they're not going to, you know, I've worked at startups. So it's like, it's yeah. going to take them a long time to fit in and they're just not going to get it. And then you go down this rabbit hole, you forget the suit, you know, but you go down this rabbit hole of like, they're probably from large corporate and they've probably used to having a ton of resources and they might be fantastic at working cross-functionally, but they're not going to be able to hit the ground running and be scrappy and they're just going to fall down. That's, that's what a suit tells a recruiter. Admittedly, that's the assumption I've made. I've hired fantastic people that wore suits to interviews, but, uh, and, and we're not trying to trap you with it, but I think you've done a really good job of representing like some, even within a single company, some of what the answers we get. And then from other people, we're like, that person just wants the job. I yeah. think, you know, sometimes sales managers in particular, yeah, like they showed up super polished, ready for, you know, just like, like presentation ready. And that's how we expect everybody to show up in every interaction. And so like, I would just assume that that person like really not only wants the job, but also has a high degree of polish in their work, and, which is like, just and, and you're different. in the same company. Like you're, you're <laughs> right next door to each other. It's like the, the director of marketing and the director of sales. Yeah. And like, if, and that's like, whether the person's wearing a jacket or not, and then you try to like cross multiply that by how do they communicate about work when they're working remotely and, and what do we consider core hours and is on time, like is two minutes late considered disrespectful or is that considered really normal? And like, also like what goes in email and what goes in Slack is like, just like explosive in terms of what constitutes a thing that needs to be captured in email and what is a thing that can be in a Slack thread sort of going by. And so like when you start getting into all that, <laughs> you're like, we cannot we cannot be like, oh, well, there's, there's nine buckets, right? It's why that training fizzles because like at some point we're going to have to articulate what are our expectations? What is our culture around this? Right? Like there's a lot of ways to do it. I think about all the time that like Goldman Sachs sent out this memo a couple of years ago. It was fascinating where Goldman Sachs famous, like dress code, right? Everybody's got a dress code. Here's the dress code. If you're mask presenting, here's the dress code. If you're femme presenting, although they would just say men and women, I think. But like, anyway, here's the dress code for Goldman Sachs. And we expected of everyone. And it was like suit, right? Suit and tie um, and blouse and skirt and whatever. And they sent out this mail that said, you know, as Goldman's client base has diversified, we're working with clients in a lot of industries. And some of those industries have a more casual approach. And we never want to make our clients uncomfortable by sort of overdressing for the occasion. And so, you know, we're rescinding the dress code. You know, you should, you should dress according to your judgment. And I'm like, I get it. I get it. I get it. I get it. And then at the bottom they say, but obviously dress in a way that, you know, reinforces our culture and expectations at Goldman Sachs. Thank you very much. And I'm like, wait, what? you were just, you were in the midst of articulating a policy that was grounded in like customer service and stuff. And then you just threw in this curveball at the end, which is like, but if you don't read my mind, you're fired. Right. Yeah, yeah, and like, and so much of like incompetent management is that 
is like, that person doesn't care about their work. And how do I know? Because they're not wearing a suit. Yeah. Or they don't want the job because they didn't send a thank you note. Right. We get that one a lot. Yeah. The the t-shirt with the tuxedo, I'd be so fascinated from an anarchist shit disturber perspective. Like what would like, if I could, if, you know, if, if I didn't need to worry about paying bills and all that fun stuff, that would be a fun experiment to like, just get hired at Goldman Sachs through a suit, read that memo. And then I'm like, cool, I'm just going to wear a t-shirt with a tuxedo print on it. See how that plays out. Not well. I'm be very sure. strong. I think there probably aren't a lot of anarchists at Goldman Sachs, but no. that over some time. I never think process that process might select against it. <laughs> yeah. Um, the the thank you note thing uh, is interesting as well because uh, thirty minutes to make a, a judgment on someone on whether or not they're right for an organization is just broken in the first place. But having to live within that framework of this is how recruitment essentially is, and most people do. I mean, biased towards it, not going to lie, because the folks that take it, there's this interesting, I'd be curious to kind of like double click on this a little bit. Not that it's, um, yeah, let's let the, I've, I've had really good experiences with the thank you note candidates, right? Like there's in terms of a, oh, this makes my job easier, Right. In terms of candidate selection and like, the market's shifted right now because getting five, six hundred, eight hundred, a thousand applicants per role versus like the twenty five fifty that there used to be in, in the before times. But the the thank you note was was always just a nice signal for me as a recruiter. It wasn't a data point, but it was it was just like, OK, this is if I had it's interesting because if if as a recruiter, I would like. I would I would put them forward. They were a candidate I was comfortable putting to through to the next round and introducing to the hiring manager and advocating for. But it wasn't like this is the one. And then they send that thank you note afterwards. It's like the amount the amount of score, mm-hmm. or, or like they just immediately increases. Why? I, I don't even know. But it's proven itself to me at least, right? Like, and and you know I, I'll have to to die reputationally of like that being a bad practice, but I'm okay with like acknowledging that, like that, that thing. So I'm curious, I'm curious to hear the, the, your perspective on that. You say like you're allowed to have a preference within your, your process, right? Like it's totally yeah. allowed to, to say, we expect a thank you note or totally allowed to say, you know, we expect you to dress for the job. And in our organization, this is what dress for the job means and have it be like a, a check in the yes, like we'd love to come have you come work here or a no check. I think the piece that we take issue with is where it's not clear for the candidate. Mm. And so if you tell a candidate, like in our organization, like we, we, we are grateful for each other's time. We're grateful for your time, but you're also like taking time in terms of the interview process. And so we're going to send you a thank you note just in terms of appreciation of the process, let you know where you are. But our expectation is that like that goes both ways. And that's like starting off on the right foot in terms of sort of like your entry point to the organization. That's a value we have is a conversation that you could have. And then if somebody doesn't send a thank you note, then you're like, okay, specifically like we said it mattered to the organization. We said it was a values thing, or we said it mattered to the organization just in terms of like an interpersonal thing. And the person didn't do it. Then I think you're getting a very clear signal of like, okay, like we said it was important and it didn't happen. But I think what ends up happening when we don't say it's important is that like, the people who know 
is usually a class signifier. The reason mm. they know is either because of Christmas cards or because of like grandparents' birthday check. Like, like people know, but they like, they know for a set of reasons. They had a parent who was in business and coached them on it or an older sibling or whatever, right? And so like now they know that thing and that's great. Like mm -hmm. it, it works out for them, but it's like. It has nothing to do with skill. Just the, oh, this person has learned a nicety about being human. But you can make it have to do with skill, which is cool, right? Yeah. Like you can you can take it and say like it is a thing that that we care about, and like can you listen to a thing that the organization cares about, and then like meet that need because that that is the thing that we actually want to test for in the interview process. That's legitimate. That's Every organization's legit. got values and expectations, right? There's stuff that you put in the job description, but you're also allowed to articulate different expectations in the pre-screen or whatever. And like in that moment, if you've got a candidate who's not listening, that's a real problem, right? But what you're yeah. trying to figure out is like how do we, how can we tease apart and, and you may be totally right. It may be that without coaching, the people who send thank you notes of their own accord tend yep. to do well in the job because they had a mom who was an executive for 30 years and taught them how business works and stuff. So you've got a, a leg up there, but not because of what the screening process was in the interview, mm -hmm. but because of yeah. like, this person has a bonus coming in and, and that bonus coming in has class trappings um, and and it's just worth watching that like you can end up with a process that really rewards and, and most of them do yeah. people who come from a certain background and people who like have access to certain things on the come up. Right. Like if you, if you go to lunch with a candidate and you pay attention to them using the right fork, it's the same thing, except like more, <laughs> more people would spot that one. They're like, okay, they know about like salad forks and fish knives and stuff like that. Like they went to cotillion or whatever, but like, but like, it's more, it's more obvious that we're doing class screening when we do that Yeah. for something like thank you cards or, or wearing a suit, which can work in either direction. It's actually mm -hmm. often like people of lower means who feel like they have to dress to impress for that job. Um, or like, or switching, um, industries, right? Like in, when I, when I got hired as Mozilla's very first PR hire at the interview, I was wearing a suit and, and most of Mozilla was like, why are you wearing a suit? But like, not to my face. Right. But I like found out later from my friend who had introduced me for the job. She was like, why did you wear a suit? I'm like, I work at a PR agency. We were yeah. like, you interview at a PR agency. You're like, you're wearing a suit, like a hundred percent. Like that's, yeah. that's how that happens. Um, and switching over to a tech and like going from San Francisco PR agency to a mountain view based tech company. They're like, what's wrong with you? I'm like, what's wrong with you? Like, mm. I didn't know. And yeah. like, we would not presume you have recruited so many people. We would not presume to teach you about recruiting, but like this kind of back and forth is the stuff that like for most managers, they've never encountered it. They've never had an opportunity to take something like feedback or like are pips just for covering your ass or can people actually graduate from a pip and come back to a high performing place, right? They've never had like so much of the time we'll, we'll do like a five minute exercise, like a little five minute thing, just scribble down some stuff, right? Like with your reflections on the thing we just did and we, you know, we, we let them write and then we say, okay, how was that? And the number of people who are like, you know, I've never thought about that before. Like they just, there's nothing. It's like, congratulations. You were a great engineer. We got a team of four engineers. that's going to report to you now. Care and feeding stuff. If you have any questions, ask your director. Off you go. Right. Yeah. And like, they just, that's it. That's all they've got to work with. And so any reflection at all, any discussion about like what could be going on here and how might we do this and stuff like that is the, it's water in the desert. It's just the first time they've ever encountered it. And yeah. we get folks who want to know, like, there's a candidate that I really want to close, but it's out of band. 
is it okay if I bump their comp by a hundred K it will like totally screw up the salary band, but like, I really want to hire this person. What do I do? Right. And like, we, we get like a bunch of this stuff, right. Where there is no pat answer, but there's an answer that like your HR people and culture and talent folks really like want to be in there in that conversation. But what often ends up happening is like the managers don't even know that that's a thing that they're like the hiring managers are like, they're not stupid. They're like incredibly good at the work that they're doing. But like sometimes those questions come up and they're like, not aware that that's a question that should find its way to a talent yeah. partner or to an HR partner. And like the number of things where we're like, well, what did your HR person say when you brought it to them? They're like, well, I didn't. HR. <laughs> we're like, oh, I guess well, like, they're sure. Yeah. Just like that, that one, two of like, you have people within your organization who are like yeah. really deliberately designing and normalizing the employee experience here. And anytime you're like going to go throw that out of whack, you should probably go say hi to them. Like, it's just not a thing that managers know by default. There's a look. It's in the eyes. There's a look when we talk to HR leaders in an organization who feel like they've been screaming in a soundproof room for like <laughs> six to 12 months, yeah. right? There's just this sense of like, I can, I remember like years ago, one of the first clients we worked with, there was an HR leader who said, you know, I, I know the managers need to talk to each other. I know they need a community of practice. And so I, like, I took the initiative and I set up a monthly manager's meeting and people attended the first one. And like, I can't, it's like the same three people at all of them. And I, I know that they have problems. I can see into their organizations that like, there are things not going well, but I can't, how do I force them to attend it? And, mm -hmm. you know, we said, well, you can't, but like, we're going to go train them and let's see where we are at the end of that. And we got to the end of the program and multiple of them went to her and we're like, why don't we have that manager's meeting anymore? We need that. She's like, I'm going we got, to we got, got a lot of stuff we got to unpack. We got to get consistent about it. Right. And like, she could have done a murder, but she didn't. Yes. She was like, in a half, cause like, cause our people have, people can see it. They know yeah. that there's a problem. They just struggle to compel managers to engage with it because like the people ops folks, one are exposed to it, but two have been trained in it. Yep. So they have more of that diagnostic lens and and they're they're trying to get these managers to do it, but the managers just don't have the the equipment yet. And we had a we had a boss who was trying to like we're talking about underperformance, right? And he's like, Well, I have someone and like, but I don't I like I need a PIP. Do I write that like myself? Mm. We're like, you're in a four hundred person global or like global, like like fully global organization. Like you HR, right? And he's like, Yeah, would would they help me with a PIP? Is that a thing they do? Oh, okay. And like okay. he wasn't being. I might need to flip. put like a warning ahead of this podcast for the community, <laughs> just from <laughs> some of the shit you're saying is pretty triggering. I'm not gonna I'm lie. Sorry. And I'm no, not even like proper HR. It's just like. But they don't know, right? And like I, yeah. I don't know whether it makes it better that it's from ignorance, not malice. But that is not malicious. That person is not asking no, because no. like they're trying to have their HR person have a bad day. They genuinely just did not know. It's what Melissa said earlier about how like the hardest thing is is figuring out what to call it. Because when you call it management training, they're like, I don't have a management training problem. I have my managers aren't doing their job problem. But like those are the same problem. And, yeah. And that you see it because once once you give them some of those tools, they engage and. You just, you can hear a little bell ring because the HR people keep getting their wings because like managers are pulling them in. We, we talked to a recruiter once who came into an org where we had trained the bosses and she messaged us. She'd been there like a week. She's like, what did you tell them? <laughs> and, and we're like, what do you mean? She's like, I have never had hiring managers show up with a rec 
a job description draft, a sense of leveling, a sense of three comparables, some some ideal candidates. Like I've just never had that happen before. And mm-hmm. the result is that I'm closing recs at twice my normal throughput because yeah. I've just got I've just got partners who know what what their job is as a hiring manager. Like literally what we told them was you can't just walk by somebody's desk and say, we need more engineers. Three more engineers. You can't say (laughs) we need more salespeople. Like you're just not allowed to. Like if you've ever done it, like go apologize to the person you did it to and like don't do it again. That's literally what we told them. It's it's funny because you were mentioning this earlier where uh, one of the people had just blocked off the right amount of time to be the leader that they needed to be or had reduced the amount of people reporting into them. And then it was like, that was magical. I can do my job now. And from a recruitment lens, which is the lens I'm forced and enjoy looking through, uh, it's funny that the theme is people not budgeting their time appropriately. And that's not the only piece, but just time management is such a big part of good leadership in terms of most people don't effectively really assign enough time to the things that they need to do. And the biggest frustration that any recruiter will go through, and I'm sure this can be copy pasted for any profession or skill set, is, you know, I'm a leader and I have to make hiring. And because I have a recruitment team or because I have HR or people ops or whatever, I'm just going to lean on them to do that. Whereas like the second you need to make a hire, you have to carve out time in your calendar as like, if I use the time, great. But if I don't, even just for the sake of interviewing, just for the sake of making time to do interviews, that needs to be carved out. And it's this one to your, to your point is like, people don't, it's, it's like really obvious stuff. And, 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 neither of you or nobody invented this concept of like, oh, if I do this thing or if I have this new project, I need to make time for it. Whereas like for some reason that just doesn't really, it's not a natural reaction for people, it seems like. On the recruiting side, like I often am at a moment, particularly in startup where I'm hiring because I'm underwater, but me being all the way underwater is how I got the headcon approved in the first place. And so like I'm in a bad spot before we even write the rec, right? Before we even bring in candidates, like I'm already working overnight. And so like for a lot of the folks, it's really just like, I mean, just we work with a bunch of folks who do what we call second shifting, right? They like, they work the day job and then they Mm -hmm. eat something and then they get back on when it's quiet to do their real work. And when we talk to folks, we're like, we need to do a different thing because like what we're doing right now, like you, you can only do for so long before you will like literally fall over. But it's the same is true, right? Like if you've got a, if you got a rec that's supposed to help you get out from under it, like that includes interviewing, that includes a selection process, that includes like actually an offer, right? And like, whatever, like all the stuff you know, but like it also includes onboarding. And if you have no space to do any of that well, like you will be in that loop forever, right? Because yeah. if you can't like, if you can't hire well, then like the person's going to bounce really quickly or you're going to bounce the person really quickly. If you can't onboard well, like you're really in the same spot. And so for leaders, it's like, just how do we like give them enough breathing room to be able to see clearly that like getting this person like into the organization and up and running is the answer to you are underwater. But if you don't get out from underwater to make space to do that process well, it, like you're just going to be in this like constant hiring loop forever. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's frustrating when you're in that loop. Uh, 
And it's sad that things have to get bad before someone says, how do we fix this problem kind of thing in business? But that happens in life as well. It's probably just a part of being human almost to a certain extent. The one so thing yes. that... Well, I'll just, I'll just say quickly, yes. Yeah. And um, humans, including managers, want to not hate their life and their work. And, and we come back to it a lot. And so if they've created a situation that where they do, it's probably not by design. And, and this comes up a lot, right? That like, you know, we had, we had this thing happen a while ago where we, we opened a wall at home and we found asbestos. Yeah. And like in the moment where you find that, if it's your first time dealing with it, you're like, well, panic, do we panic. burn the house down? <laughs> like what is, what is the nature of the exposure here? Right? Like, do we, yeah. is this like something that we fix in, in 15 minutes with some special spray or is this like move? Right. Or you're already yeah. dead or whatever. Like, you know, it's, you really don't know, you know, that like the words got a very strong association, mm. but like you don't actually know how deep in you are. And your example is a perfect one, right? Like if I say, you know, we're, we're, we can't get this done with four people. We need six people on this team. And I, I finally went and I, my director said no, but my VP said yes. And, and so like now I've, I've got these two wrecks. You feel like you solved a problem. And, and if it's your first time doing it, or even if it's your sort of sixth time doing it, but you haven't had a chance to reflect on it, you don't appreciate that you just signed yourself up for 80 hours of work. Yeah. Right. And if you did, if you knew going in, like I'm agitating for this and one part of it is making the business case and, and getting the budget for it. But the other part of it is clearing the decks for the next month and a half to make sure that I can properly devote to this process and, and get it up and down fast yeah. so that I can get back to work. And, and do I have the capacity for that? Or does that need to be pushed out? Or do I need to like punt one of my OKRs because it's not feasible with the team we have and it's going to take me the rest of this quarter just to hire the person that I need. Like that level of systematic thinking is possible and you will have a much better life as a result. Yeah. But at some point, somebody has got to, has got to say the words that you just said, right? Has got to say like, anytime you're asking for a rec, here's the hit. And if you're not willing to sign off for the hit, you're not ready for the yeah. rec yet. And like, yeah. that's just cross multiply that by about 30 or 40 different typical management engagements, right? One-on-ones, feedback, underperformance compensation, whatever. And you've got like the start of a competent manager. Yeah. Yeah. I think the easiest way I've found, and not that I have it all figured out, but for the sake of taking something away from it is when talking with product engineering design folks, speaking in terms of like sprints and roadmaps and just the nature of like only being able to do so much and having a backlog and translating, adding hiring into that, like what do you take off of your day to day because you need to do hiring now is the way to essentially sell the concept of like, you need to block off the right amount of time mm -hmm. to do this thing. And I think one of the challenges that people ups folks face a lot of the time, and I faced it myself, so I'm not, I'm not trying to uh, make it seem like I've got the answers here or anything like that. But one of the, when I went through leadership training, um, sadly through another organization, but when, when I went through it, the thing that kept like, as I was doing this reflection and as I was going through it, uh, the one thing that I was struggling with at the time and still something I'm working on was, was influencing others of like, when you know the right answer and you have to influence people across, like 
managing your team and being an expert in your practice, that gives you a bit of an edge when you have a team of the, the people that you like, you are the, the person that knows the subject matter expert, but influencing people outside of that bubble becomes trickier because you don't speak the same language in theory, right? And you don't know their pain points and you can't relate to them from that perspective. And I think there's an aspect of sales to it, being able to translate the problem into uh, something that they understand so that you can get on the same page quickly. Uh, And I think that's one of the things that's kind of missing from a from a skill set when people kind of graduate into people ops, however they do, whether it's career transition or just, I went to school for this. Mm-hmm. That yeah. being, I'm oh, sorry, go ahead. I, I, we've talked with HR folks who, who have asked like, how do I make a business case for X, right? For, mm-hmm. for training our managers maybe, but even for other things, like how do I make a business case for why we need to have a, a quarterly offsite, even though we're fully remote? Like it's a lot of travel. I understand people like togetherness, but like what's, what's the case for it, right? And, and it's funny because all you need to do is sort of pull on like, well, what happens if you don't, mm. right? You're going to, if you have attrition, like that's very expensive. If you have people disengaged, that's very expensive, right? If you got a team of eight people reporting to a boss, but because that boss is unavailable or trying to do a bunch of their own work or, or whatever, um, those eight people are sort of disengaged. You, you've still got them on payroll. Like in a, in a tech context, you're well into seven figures in terms of how much you're paying for these eight people. And you're getting like next to no or maybe negative productivity if they're working against some other part of the organization or causing conflict or whatever. Like that's very expensive. And so the business case really writes itself if you step back from there to say like, how do I justify this? It's because look what happens if we don't, right? right? And it's it's the same with like hiring when you're underwater and stuff. Like, okay, you may not feel like you have the time, but like, do you have the time to have two of your remaining engineers quit? Because they're burning out right now. And so if you don't have that time, then you're going to have to make this time. And like, that's uncomfortable. But when you talk about making sales cross departments, the other thing that really helps is if we have a shared idea of where we're going, like if we have a shared set of, of what actually matters as an organization. And like, it's the one that I was thinking of as you were sort of describing it. It's like, this is one where like, we should want the same thing. Like I, as a hiring man, and we talk to hiring managers about this all the time, but like you as the hiring manager want amazing people on your team working on hard projects. Like you, you need that. That is fundamentally like core to you being able to get the stuff done that you're committed to. And like, so it is everybody else. Like, so does your recruiting team, right? Like the people on the, the sort of talent side, like also want that. And and the the places that like it gets friction, like we just need to come back to like we all like desperately want the same thing to happen. We have a different sense in terms of the outcome and the process and how long it's going to take. But like fundamentally, the starting point is like you you've got a good starting point, which is you want the same thing. Yeah, if it's less of a sales and persuasion and more of a, a mutual design exercise, right? Yeah. Okay, you want you want to hire these people before the end of the quarter. Yeah. Let's get in, let's get in a room or a Zoom room or whatever. Let's figure out what it's going to take to do that. Here's what I know we're going to need from my side. Who can you free up on your side to be on interviews? Like, are there places where we can use structured questions that we developed for another candidate, right? Like, as yeah. soon as you're on the same side of the table and mutually designing, like, what's a process that's going to feel good here and get us to a good outcome? You're in a really different spot than, like, I need more of your team's time than your team is giving me right now. Yeah, in, in terms of meeting prep for that, meeting where an individual needs to either sell or 
cross collaborate. I love what you said and how you said it was like, we want the same thing. Like literally you open up the meeting with, we want the same thing. How do we get it? And, and you already have so much more, more buy-in from that as a concept, I think. Um, I used to work with a guy who would call that moment strategy theater. Like he, he and I were really close collaborators, right? And like we were sort of foils for each other within the organization, but like we would often stand up in front of our teams, the two of us side by side, like back in the days where we were all side by side in an actual <laughs> room. And like, we would say like, here's what we're trying to get done. And we're really excited about it. And like, here's what we think that means. But like, we want to talk to all of you. And the reason we would talk to our teams at the same time was because like, it squashed so much of the downstream, like, you know, like we're on the marketing side, we're on the sales side, like the, just the conflict there got much easier when like mm. people knew that the starting point, like before we kicked off anything, the starting point was hearing like your own boss stand next to another boss within the organization and say like, this thing's important. And yeah, doing, I've not heard strategy theater as a term. I've not heard a lot of the terms, uh, which probably highlights the fact that I should go through the training at some point in some way, shape or form. Uh, I need to find a way to do that. Um, the I'm cognizant as well as I'm sure both of you are that we are coming up to 90 minutes on a podcast and uh, I could continue to talk about all this fun stuff forever. And I'm sure both of you could as well. Um, but in the let's, let's, in the, in the spirit of giving people a reasonable podcast to digest um, and knowing that there's hopefully going to be more in, in the future, or at least another one in real life at a roadhouse, ideally. Uh, uh, it's in the newsletter, the super awesome newsletter that I just resubscribed to because I realized I hadn't been subscribed to for a little bit because I'm no longer using my old work email. Um, there's sort of like two things that stuck out and beautifully written. You, you know, I, I love it. Everybody loves it. You know, it quality finds its audience, but the two things that stuck out to me, it's all made of people and there are no cheat codes and there are no cheat codes for me as a underground Fortnite gamer stands out because <laughs> there really isn't. And so the, I think the final question that I, I have for both of you is it, everybody wants that, cheat code. I imagine like your clients coming to you want the cheat code. And then there has to be this conversation where you explain to them that there are no cheat codes. And I imagine it's not as simple as just saying there's no cheat codes, but work with us anyways. I'm curious to understand and, and just get your perspectives on how that conversation goes and like, what, what do people really need to expect? And like invest in when, when they're starting to take this thing seriously. We spoke to a New York times reporter at the time. He's not there anymore, but we spoke to him once a while ago. He was co-authoring a book and he wanted to talk about future work stuff in general, right? Remote back to office, hybrid, um, global employment, all kinds of things that the conversation went a lot of places, but he was sort of sad. He was, he was like, it all feels really messy. It feels like capitalism is not making this easy on anyone. And like all the incentives are to grind people into a pulp. And the fact that you can hire from anywhere means there's like weird wage pressure and stuff like that. And, you know, high, highly skilled talent becomes really mercenary. And it just, it all feels 
really bad. And when you talk to people, they're all having a bad experience at work. And, and like, isn't that overwhelming? Like, how, how do you, how do you even start? There's no, there's nowhere to start that isn't everywhere. Mm. And, and we said, no, 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 you, you start with the managers. Right. And he's like, well, sure. You run a management training company. We're like, no, <laughs> you got it backwards. We run a management training company because you start with the managers because there actually is, there's one cheat code to making organizations work better. And that's that like the people who hold power in that organization need to know what the hell it's for. And that like, as soon as you start with that, like we, we, we leaned forward and we started talking very quickly at him and he stopped at one moment and he's like, Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> and like the conversation that was supposed to be half an hour ended up like 95 minutes. And he's like, well, because like, they don't know what they're, if they don't know what they're doing, of course I'm going to have a bad experience because like when I'm asking them about this or that, they can't answer. And like nobody told them. And we're like, there it is. Keep chasing that. Like just, just follow that line all the way through because it's like, it's not a cheat code and it is right. It's not a cheat code in the sense that there's not one weird trick and suddenly everything's easy. Yeah. But it is a cheat code in that like, it's a, it's a pressure point. It's the, it's the place where the knot is because it's breaking communication. It's breaking accountability. It's breaking coordination of effort. If the people we pay to do those things don't even know that that's what they're being paid for, much less how to do those things, then you end up with Gallup saying that like only 26% of people are engaged at work. It's like, it's, it's not easy to fix, but it's straightforward in terms mm. of what the work is. Yeah. It's your, it's it there. I'm, I suppose it's probably weird or was weird at a certain point to build a business around things that sound like common sense. But we lived it and it yeah. wasn't, it, it, it would have helped a lot. Like yeah. I, if I had had any management training when I was first getting going, it would have helped a lot. It, it wasn't common. Um, it was pretty painful. And like I mean, both Jonathan and I came up through the first wave of geo distributed management. So we were managing people across the world in different labor markets with no training in terms of what it means to try and help underperformance in France. Like, just like a lot of stuff that like, again, it seemed like now I'm like, well, like now I'm sort of steeped in this stuff. And so like, it is common sense now that like, if you're, if you're managing someone in a labor market outside the one that you live in, their labor laws might be different and you need to consult with like a, an expert where you like that stuff is really straightforward, but it wasn't once upon a time. And I think like part of where Raw Signal Group connects for folks is that like we both remember like how hard it was to not have that grounding or that understanding and how like it really did just feel like pushing like a boulder up a hill every day um, mm. and not because we didn't love the organization and not because we didn't love the work and not because we didn't love our teams but like it was just really hard in ways that like it could have been much easier and so much of like the founding of Raw Signal Group and the work that we do is about like that moment where like you've got bosses who like are showing up for their people or trying to show up for their people and trying to do a good job and like really struggling. And that, that is a, that is a moment that like we can make better for so many people. It's. I'm going back to that part where you talked about, and maybe I'm extending this podcast by a little bit longer, but forgive me. Um, <laughs> where you talked about the, the one sort of story that stood out for you was this client uh, in Iraq, right? And mm -hmm. their problem was the same problem. And 
it universal, right? Like that, that's almost heart. That's really wholesome. Like that's a whole, such a wholesome story and, and, and good to hear, but then it makes it sound, it makes it sound so simple and yet it's not. Um, I don't know. That's an observation that that's coming to mind now. It's because it's not easy. Like what at all? Yeah. It's not easy at all. And, you know, you, you mentioned earlier, like vacationing with your ex-wife and, and like divorce club is another one of those things that teaches you a bunch of stuff. Right. And, and I will say like, I, there is stuff I could have known about myself in my twenties. I could have reflected on in marriage one and didn't. Yeah. And divorce club is how I came to learn those things about myself, about what was important to me, about how I communicated about stuff. Um, should I have learned that sooner? I mean, I think I would like to have, right? I don't, but, but it's hard. There's a, <laughs> there's a lot of stuff in the human experience to learn. And so like you sort of, you get it in the order you get it. Um, but, but the specific focus we have is like, okay, fine. There, there are times when you're going to learn to tie your shoelaces and stuff. But like, as soon as you start cashing a paycheck to be a manager, that is the time to figure out what's going on there because we wrote it in our most recent newsletter, right? There's a difference between learning to code, learning to play bassoon or whatever, and learning to manage. And it's that like when you make mistakes on some like personal hobby, you're frustrated, you put it down for a while, your, yeah. your code doesn't do the thing you want it to. When you make mistakes as a manager, you're making those mistakes on people. Yeah. yeah. And when, you know, when we're talking to like people ops folks, they see it the most because they're, they're the ones who, who get called afterwards to deal with that. But like, that's the other piece of mission draw for us. It's one part remembering how hard it is to be those people. And it's one part reflecting on like the places where we failed and would like to, to spare other managers, but also their teams from going through the same thing purely from ignorance. Okay. So many more questions, 90 plus minutes. I really enjoyed the podcast. Thank you for making time. I know we played a little bit of back and forth on getting heart emoji with the hands for depending on how we publish this. <laughs> um, any final things you want to share or say, or the raw signal, whether it's Def Leppard tracks, what, what, whether it's Nirvana stuff to listen to. Um, I would say like if people aren't sick of hearing us after like 90 minutes of listening to us all talk, um, if they want to hang out with us every other Wednesday, uh, we are at worldsbestnewsletter.com and we are writing about 1300 words generally about management and leadership topics sort of broadly, right? Um, but it, it tends to be a really good place for us to synthesize not only the things that like we're sort of kicking around or thinking about, but also things that like we, we talk to bosses all day, every day. And we have this like weird perspective because we're literally talking to leaders in fast moving organizations as our day jobs. And so you end up just like hearing some stuff and you're like, okay, well like that, we've now heard that like seven different times from three different organizations. And you're just like, okay, well like there's the, there's a there there. And so the newsletter tends to be a place where we're like playing with some of that stuff. If you are listening to this and we're killing you softly with your song and you want to reach out, like if, if, if you're going through stuff, whether it's a, a thing that you're going to solve with training or not, we, we will always try to be helpful if we can be helpful. Hello at rawsignal.ca gets both of us. Um, but if you're still trying to figure out if we know what we're talking about, worldsbestnewsletter.com, that's the one. Makes sense. Melissa, Jonathan, thank you so much for being on the podcast with me. 
listener, if you're still here, an hour and 38 minutes later, I think you made the right choice. I believe in you. Thank you for listening. Uh, the People People Group uh, is probably how you heard about this podcast. It isn't. If it isn't how you heard about it, it is a community of 4,000 plus HR and recruitment professionals that you should probably join. This is my plug turn. So head over to www.thepeoplepeoplegroup.com only after you've gone to worldsbestnewsletter.com and apply to join if that is your profession. Uh, and um, yeah, you can follow us online on Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter. Uh, are you still doing Instagram stuff, Raw Signal Group? No? Sometimes. We are Sometimes. like, I would say we are most on LinkedIn. Like LinkedIn most is where LinkedIn. we spend most on LinkedIn. Follow Melissa and Jonathan Nightingale on LinkedIn. Uh, if you want to become a better human, that'll definitely work. And um, fun fact. Uh, no, we're going to end there. And yeah, we're going to end there. Cool. Thanks. Bye. And that wraps up another episode of From a People Perspective. If you learned something today and want to join an amazing Slack community of talented HR, recruitment, and operations professionals, head on over to thepeoplepeoplegroup.com. On there, you can sign up to join the Slack community or get access to a number of incredible resources we've carefully curated on a bounty of relevant topics like diversity, equity, and inclusion, policies and procedures, and even employment branding. Again, all this can be viewed at thepeoplepeoplegroup.com. It's completely free and pretty awesome. As well, you can find and follow us on both Twitter and Instagram. On Twitter, find us at peoplepeoplegrp and on Instagram at thepeoplepeoplegroup. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you soon.